We have been going through this series in the book of James, and uh, this morning we're going to finish uh, our study within the book of James, which will be really cool. Uh, you will have under your belt uh, an in-depth study on this book in the Bible, and so that's a very cool thing. The title of today's message is The Priority of Prayer. Does anyone recall the title of our series through the book of James? Anyone remember? I know Gabriel's here first service, so <laughs> Gabriel, give it to us. Faith that, faith that works, right? We've been looking at this theme of how faith is something that is to work itself out in our life. Faith is not a claim. Faith is not a theory. Uh, faith is this trust in God, and out of that relationship with the Lord come works. And so uh, we've been looking at how faith works within trials, within temptations, within the treatment of others, within our actions, within how we talk, within repentance, within our plans. And finally today, we're going to talk about how faith works within prayer. And so in this closing section that we're looking at today, see, it, see verse 20 up there? James 5, verse 13 through 20. 20 is the end of the road for the book of James. And so we're going to be addressing today the topic of prayer. Within this concluding chunk, you can note down that prayer is mentioned directly seven times. Okay, so if you are taking notes, you'll want to note that down. Seven times prayer is directly mentioned. I would even argue for an eighth or ninth mention, uh, maybe indirectly. And so prayer is the topic. And so as we get into this final portion, we're going to read through it, and then we're going to pray for our study on prayer. Okay? Sound good? All right, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look on this, this concluding portion, we pray that, Lord, in our lives, this would come to pass, that the priority of prayer would take priority. Lord, that we would, by faith, grab on to the promises in Scripture, and we would pray according to your will in whatever season and whatever state we are in. And so, God, we pray that you'd bring understanding 
And then, God, that you would bring revelation, that we might live these things out as we live for you. And all God's people said, amen. So the first thing that we're going to be looking at this morning is the place of prayer. The place of prayer. And we find this in the first couple verses within our section today. The place of prayer. Now, James kind of changes subjects, right? Last week, we talked about perseverance, endurance, and this week he changes subject, subjects to begin talking about prayer. And he poses here in verse 13 and 14, three questions and three answers. You might want to note that down. Three questions and three answers he poses. Notice the three question marks. The first question is, is he says, is anyone among you suffering? Second question, is anyone cheerful? Third is anyone among you sick? Suffering, cheerful, or sick? Each question is based on a different life circumstance. For some who he was writing to, some would be in a state of suffering. Others would be in a state of cheerfulness. And some would be in a state of sickness. Yet there is a similar answer for each question posed. Look there at the first question, the answer. He says, well, if you are suffering, let that man, that woman, that person pray. And if he is cheerful, let him sing psalms. Which you you know what psalms are, right? There are prayers in the Bible that you can put to melodies. And so essentially he says, sing your prayers then. And then thirdly, he says, is anyone among you sick? And the answer would be go to the people that God has put in your life and have them pray for you. If you are suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, cheerful, sing your prayers. And finally, if you are sick, go and ask someone to pray for you. You know, we can often turn away from God in times of suffering. People do this often. They look at their lives, they say, why is it like this? And they blame God. And so in frustration, they turn away from God. James would say, turn to God. Many people in a cheerful and prospering state, they say, well, why do I need God? And they forget God. Some in frustration, suffering, and some in forgetfulness. And so he says, even in your prosperity, your cheerfulness, your happiness, turn to the Lord. You see, prayer keeps us in line with him. Everything in our life can often pull us away from God. Circumstances and situations, feelings and emotions. But prayer is one of those things that keeps us on the straight and the narrow. The path and the plans that God has for us, prayer keeps us on them. And so the place of prayer is to have priority in any state or season that we might find ourselves in. It is to be primary in every part of our life. But I do want you to notice that James gives the most detailed instruction towards the last question that he poses. He says, is anyone among you sick? The other two were kind of simple answers. Let him pray, let him sing Psalms. But notice, look at verse 14 in your Bibles. He goes into a little bit more depth. He goes into a little bit more detail. And what is the direction? If someone is sick among you, well, note, note it down. Step one is that they are to go to the elders of the church, okay? So if you're sick, step one, 
go to the elders of the church. Now, this doesn't mean that you are to go around and try to find the oldest person because the oldest person is going to be closest to God. And so go find the most elderly person in church and have them pray for you. No, when it's referring to the elders of the church, it's in reference to the spiritual leadership of the church. Those whom God has placed in spiritual leadership over you at whatever church it might be. Here, obviously for you in junior high, I am one of those pastoral elders. Now it's weird because I'm not an elder. Well, I'm not elder in the sense of old. At least I don't think I'm old. You might think I'm old. You're like, you have a beard, you're old. Okay, I'm not that old, all right? But, but within the spiritual framework of God's church, I would be considered one of the elders here. And, and, and in scripture, the term elder or overseer or pastor are three synonymous words that go along with one another. Essentially, he says, hey, go to the, those whom God has put over you. Now, don't think about like, man, you have like a cough. You're like, well, I had a cough yesterday. Should, so, so should I go to the elders and they can pray for me? Uh, uh, no, this isn't referring to the common cold. Uh, this is referring to, to a, a type of physical infirmity. Now, would that be wrong to ask someone to pray for your cold? Yes, because you should be home. You're sick, okay? And uh, no, uh, but this is referring to, to more than likely bigger type of things, right? Like maybe cancer or, or disease or some kind of physical infirmity or long-term sickness, right? You might just need some vitamin C. So don't, don't come and get a pastor sick, like just stay home and get yourself better, okay? Uh, but, but, but the first direction is go to the elders of the church, okay? That's step one. Step two, notice, you're to have those elders, those, those in spiritual leadership, pray over you. You're to have them pray. Now, it isn't that those who are in that spiritual place of leadership has a greater ability to pray than someone else. It's not like they have like a secret back door where they say, this is the prayers that God really answers are for me. No, it's nothing like that. But God has put this, this order in place. And he said, hey, when you need something, you are to go to those whom, I'm, whom I have put over you in the Lord. And so this is good and right that we would go to them. And this is something that happens here at the church. Those who maybe are sick, maybe they just got diagnosed with something, or maybe they're battling a, an ongoing physical ailment, maybe, maybe a, a, a disc that is, that is uh, misplaced within their back and so they can barely walk. Different people will come to the church and, and, and from the instructions of James 5, they will ask for the pastoral staff to pray over them. And it is a very biblical thing. And it happens here. And so step three, notice that these elders, once they pray, as they pray, they are to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And this is where for some people, it can be like, hey, I was tracking that you're supposed to go to the elders, they're to pray for you. What is with the oil? Why are they anointing you with oil? Well, some would say this has medicinal purposes. That some would say that you are to go to the church and first work out, like maybe it's just a, a medical issue. Oil was often used for treatment within different ailments. But I don't know about you, but as much as I love the pastors here, love Pastor Jack. I would, you know, if I was sick, I would definitely want, you know, the pastors here to pray for me, those over me. But I would not necessarily go to them for medical advice, right? I wouldn't necessarily go to them for medical treatment. And so that's why I don't think that this 
anointing with oil has medicinal purposes. I believe it is a symbolic act of faith. You might want to note that down. That the anointing of oil by the elders of a church on a sick congregant is a symbolic act of faith, right? We see this in the Bible. Think about the Old Testament. Remember when Aaron was anointed with oil as he became high priest and the oil, we're told, dripped down his beard and his robe? Uh, Or what about David? Maybe you're more familiar with David's anointing. You remember when Samuel went to him as a young shepherd boy and anointed him with oil? There wasn't something powerful about the oil. It was a symbol of the power of God coming upon a person. And so we see oftentimes in scripture that oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. And so here at this church, like even in my office, I have a little wooden vial of, uh, of oil. And there's nothing magical about the oil. It's not like you could go in my office, steal it and start like going to hospitals. And okay? it's nothing like that, but it is a symbol. And so when it's, I've had junior hires, I've, I've done this with, I've, I've had different people in the, in the front office or different services where they need prayer. And so we, as a pastoral staff, we take the oil, we, we take a little bit on our thumb, we anoint the person's head. That re- really is what anoint means. It means to smear. Uh, in some denominations, they get a little crazy and like pour the whole, whole thing of oil on you, and then you got to go take a shower after. We don't do that. But just, it's just a symbol. Just like, right, communion is a symbol, right? When you take communion, you're not actually drinking the blood of Jesus. Some people believe that. That's weird, and that's not biblical, okay? But it is a symbol of what? What Jesus did for us. And so the oil is this symbol that, hey, God is powerful, and we're trusting for the power of God for the healing of this person. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, we saw the disciples do this. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing. I don't think that they were practicing medicine. I think they were exercising their faith. And oil was this symbol that, hey, we're going to rely on God. Yes, we want to go to doctors, okay? The Bible does not preach against taking medicine. But for us as believers, one of the procedures that God gives us that when we're sick, we're able to go to the church and have those in spiritual leadership anoint us with oil and pray. And that's an awesome thing. We're we're thankful that God does this. And notice that this oil, though, is to be applied in the name of the Lord. Look at the end of verse 14. That you anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The idea of that is on behalf of the Lord. You don't anoint them in the name of the senior pastor. You don't anoint them in the name of, of uh, of some power. No, it's in the name of the Lord. It's the idea that, that you are calling on God for his authority and his will. Meaning you are subjecting yourself. You say, God, we're gonna pray. We're anointed with oil. And, and this is in your name, this is on your behalf. So God, you do what you want in this person's life. And so the place of prayer is clearly primary in every season of life. Whether good or bad, prayer is to take priority in the life of a believer. Okay, make sense? Okay, so what happens after that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The product of prayer. Okay, in the next two verses, he dives into the product of prayer. What, what does this type of praying result in? Is it actual healing? Is it, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, look at verse 15. It's rather clear. And the prayer of faith 
will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay, so the product of healing is twofold. There's two parts to it. The first, you can note down that prayer produces physical healing, meaning that at times, the prayer of faith, God will allow physical healing. That someone could be sick with cancer and there could be prayer submitted for that person and they could then be healed of that cancer. It has happened and it does happen. Does it happen in every case? Certainly not. But we know that the prayer of faith produces physical healing. Notice, the prayer of faith will save the sick. You can't, you can't really uh, spin that any other way. And so what is, though, the prayer of faith? Right? Because it's, it doesn't say any prayer. It says that the prayer that will bring physical healing will be the prayer of faith. Well, you can note it down. The prayer of faith is to pray. It's not like a recorded prayer. It's an attitude of prayer. And it is to pray actually believing that God not only hears the prayer, but is able to do what you are asking. And at the same time, praying with a surrendered will, right? To have faith in someone else is to say, I don't have control in this. And so it's to pray with a, what I want you to note down, a uh, solidified confidence and a surrendered control, okay? So the prayer of faith equals a solidified confidence. God is able to do this. But it's also with a surrendered will. God, will you do this? It's, it's not a declaring, right? Some faiths would teach, some Bible teachers would teach that you just declare it in the name of Jesus, right? You just anoint them with oil and you tell heaven what's gonna happen today. No, you pray with a surrendered will, right? The prayer of faith is not this overtly obnoxious, God, you will do this. We do not demand anything of God. We do not declare anything in the heavens. We come with confidence saying, God, we pray by faith that you would heal this person. And we pray this in the name of the Lord. We pray this with boldness, with faith, but God, we want your will to be done. And so it's kind of both sides. Does that make sense? That is the prayer of faith. First John chapter five, verse 14 and 15 gives us some clarity on this because some have been known to take James 5, 15 and run with it. And they say the reason that that person wasn't healed was because the person that prayed did not have enough faith. But this concept is not biblical because we see in scripture that there were times that God's will was not to heal someone. And it had nothing to do with someone's lack or, or fullness of faith. First John 5, 14 and 15 give us great clarity regarding prayer. Notice, this is the confidence which we have before him. Meaning, any, any of you that are a believer, this is the confidence that you can have in prayer. That if we ask anything according to, to what? His will. Whose will? God's will. Your will? No, his will. Right? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we 
we have asked from him. God is not a genie to grant your wishes. That prayer is not to get your will done, it is to get his will done. And so when we pray, we always pray with a surrendered will. Solidified confidence, never doubting God's ability, right? James chapter one talked about that. Asking in, asking in doubt is like someone who is tossed to and fro on the sea and you're not gonna receive anything from the Lord. And so you pray with confidence, but you pray with a surrendered will. And so what if we do this prescribed process of prayer, but the person isn't healed, right? This happens. This happens where people come in and, and they're coming in out of obedience to James chapter five. They will literally come in and they say, hey, James chapter five tells me that I'm supposed to come in, call the elders, and, and they're to pray for me and anoint me with oil. And there are many people that walk out of church not being healed. So then what happened? We, we, did, the, did we use the wrong type of oil? Oh, you use vegetable oil? You're only supposed to use olive oil. What, what is, what, then what happens? Who messed up? Is God not powerful or is there a lack of faith? I would think neither. It simply means it wasn't God's will for that person to be healed. You see, this is a hard one for people to grasp. What do you mean? Why wouldn't God want me to be healed? Sometimes God has bigger eternal purposes that you and I can even fathom. Right? Sometimes in our mind, we're like, why wouldn't God want this person to be healed? Might be using that, like what, like what we've learned about, he's using that trial and difficulty to refine that person. Maybe to, to bring about, we, we don't know. But not in every circumstance is God's will for someone to be healed. One day, God will bring absolute healing, okay? So that, that we can bank on. The Bible says that there's gonna be a day that he, he, um, he takes away all infirmities, all sicknesses. You will have a body that will never have the sniffles, never have cancer, and you will live forever, never to experience sickness or death. The only reason there's sickness in the world is because there's sin. So he's gonna take sin out and we're gonna be good. But for now, God's will isn't always to heal now. And this is where our prayer of what? Our of faith comes in. Where we pray with confidence that God is able to, but we pray with a, an open hand, not a closed fist. Well, how do we know? Is this even scriptural? Are there people in the Bible that God didn't heal? Well, think about Paul. You know, Paul had a physical affliction. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about how Paul had this thorn in his flesh. It wasn't like a literal thorn. It's a phrase that talks about there was something that really impeded Paul physically. He struggled. He had difficulty on the physical side of things. And we're told that Paul prayed three times that he begged God and pleaded with him, please take this away, please take this away, please take this away. And God saw fit not to take that away from Paul. He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, rely on me, I will get you through this. Oftentimes, the purpose is for our own personal dependence on the Lord. And so I don't think Paul was someone who had a lack of faith in his prayer life, do you? there were other times as well. You see, God isn't always physically healing. Sometimes, and we, we pray that, he's, that he will, but we pray with a solidified confidence and a surrendered will, okay? Does that make sense? And so I'm telling you that this happens where people come in 
They say, hey, I'm battling cancer. Okay, let's pray. I've been in meetings with Pastor Jack and other pastors. I've gone to pray. And there's times where we get reports. Oh my gosh, you prayed and went back to the doctor and that spot that they had saw, we weren't sure what it, it's gone. They don't even know what it was. And there's other times where within that same week after praying with someone, they're with Jesus. What do we do with that? It's a prayer of faith. We are to trust him with the results. We do our job in praying. And so that procedure of going to the elders, asking them to pray, anointing with oil, that's our job. The healing, that ain't none of us have that ability. And so we leave that to the Lord. Does that make sense? Cool. So there's that other, that, that second part there says, if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Do you guys see that there, I believe in verse 15? And this is talking about that same person. And James kind of talks about that to some extent, that for some people, their personal sickness is a result of their personal sin. That's kind of crazy. And it makes sense. Like if you go out and sin against God by, uh, by doing a bunch of drugs, and God says, I want you to stay sober, and then you have all these health problems because you put holes in your brain, like that's, that's reaping what you sow, right? And so God can still heal that, and sometimes that sickness is a result of personal sin. Oftentimes, though, it's not, right? Someone's cancer isn't necessarily a result of their, you could be the healthiest person and then have, some, have a stroke and something can happen. It's not always because of personal choices that that happens. We live in a sinful world. But for those who are sick because of their sin, there's kind of this, this, this case of someone coming to the church and asking for prayer that there's kind of this idea that they're also, you know, not just being wanting to be made right physically, but spiritually. And that's kind of what happens here. Sometimes people come in and they want that physical healing, but really they've been away from God. And so God gave them this physical infirmity or allowed it to happen so that they might draw close to him. Sometimes God in his mercy even, even does that. And so um, we're always concerned also, not just about the physical, but the spiritual healing. Right, it's one thing, you could, you could have a, a perfect body never getting sick and then go to hell for all of eternity. And so God is, not, God is always more concerned with your spiritual future than your physical state now. And that's a good thing. And so we uh, should also be concerned, not just for the physical side, so many people focus on the physical healing, but what about the spiritual healing? Notice James gives some direction here. Look at verse 16. You guys following? You guys tracking? Look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. For what's the purpose? That you may be healed. Now that word healed is not the same word as the word save. Look at verse 15. The word save, that's referring to save the sick. That's physical healing. The word healing is, is more referring to the spiritual state of someone. It's to restore something to the state of wholeness. And the prescription, the process that's given for spiritual healing is outward confession. That is, we have people in our life that are trusted and we begin to invite them in and we open up to them that they are then able to pray for us. And there's something about this community aspect that God says, I will bring then healing to you. And this is what we encourage you guys often to do, right? Where we encourage you guys, come and talk to us. Let us know what you're going through, what you're struggling with. Let us pray for you because the Bible says that in that confession and in that praying, there is healing. 
But this is hard to do because oftentimes we want to keep everything inside, right? Our tendency is to conceal. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You know, oftentimes our tendency, our natural inkling is when we sin to cover it up. Right? We saw Moses do that when he killed that Egyptian and tried to bury him acting like no one saw. Our, our first tendency is to kind of bury our sin away and not let anyone know. But the Bible says that when you are willing to not just, of course, get right before God, right? He already knows. So you just got to, confession to God is kind of funny because it's not like informing him. It's just agreeing with him that what you did was wrong. But there are times when God says there are people in your life, spiritual leaders, right? That's the context that you would go and that, there'd be confession. And not that you have to write down this whole list, right? It's not like for me, I want a list from you next week and give me those, uh, all the things that you sinned against God this week and then, we'll, and then I'll pray for you and you'll be healed. No, but that there should be someone in your life, a couple people, that you might be able to invite them in and they can walk along with you and pray and through that comes that inner healing, right? Spiritual healing kind of sounds like, ooh, that's, that's weird, like, oh, come to me and I have a crystal ball and you'll find spiritual healing. No, this is talking about just that inner person, right? It's the, con- it's the contrast between the physical and the spiritual. Does that make sense? Cool. So look at the very end there of verse 16. He has that very last sentence in that verse. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a man, of a righteous man, avails much. The paraphrase in, uh, of a guy named Phillips, it's a, not a translation, it's a, it's a helpful paraphrase that is based upon the original language. He says this, tremendous power is made available through a good man's earnest prayer. A righteous man or a righteous woman. That when someone is living a life right with God, God says there's power in their prayer. God says if you have sin in between in between our relationship, God says, I'm not going to hear you. He doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect a pursuit. And when we are pursuing God to live a righteous life, God says, your powers, your powers, your prayers will make a difference. Your prayers will be God's power, right? Uh, Will move God's power to, to do things. And that's what he just gave those examples, right? He gave those examples of, hey, like think about the power behind this. It's not you praying. Like your prayer didn't heal that person. It was God's power. But God said, because of your prayer of faith, like I healed that person. We get to be involved in the power of God through prayer. That's a really cool thing. Think about even spiritual healing. That through that open confession and that praying for someone, that you can help someone's inward journey of of healing be experienced in their life through the power of God. But the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer does anything. Does God hear it? Because sometimes you're not going to see the effect right away. Oftentimes you won't. You're not going to oftentimes see that immediate effect of prayer, but will you by faith trust that when you pray by faith that God says, I will hear and I will move. I will do all my will. And so he not only gives those examples, but he then gives a, an example in the following verses. And this is where we come to the last couple of verses on prayer specifically, verse 17 and 18. He gives a pattern of prayer and he gives an example of a guy named Elijah. Do you guys know about a guy named Elijah in the Bible? 
That's you? Okay. Elijah was a man, you were probably named after him. Elijah was a man of faith. Elijah was a man of, of prayer. And notice what it says in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, verse 18. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was a pretty gnarly dude. Like, he did some pretty crazy miracles. I'm not sure if you've ever read First Kings or not, but if you have not, like, you should. It's better than any movie, especially the new Star Wars that you will ever watch, okay? Uh, the Bible is exciting uh, and oftentimes is, is, is stolen from uh, because it is, it is it's true. And so Elijah was that guy who... Right, he never died. He was taken up by a chariot of fire and brought to heaven. Crazy story. You got to go read it. And so Elijah's referenced here, and uh, he's an example because he prayed, and we're told that for three and a half years, because of the prayer of Elijah, God didn't give rain to the land. And then Elijah prayed again seven times, and God gave rain after three and a half years of no rain. Now, why would Elijah even pray something like that? Well, if you know the context, the context is that this is, this is uh, during the great wickedness of Ahab, King Ahab and Jezebel. You guys ever heard of a, of a lady named Jezebel? Gnarly chick, all right? Gnarly, I mean, she's crazy. Uh, she was crazy. And Ahab was an evil, evil king. And so between these two, there is such great evil happening in the land. And so Elijah, as a judgment on behalf of God, prays, and God, because it was according to his will, he stops rain for three and a half years. Now you're like, oh, that sounds, kind of, that sounds like California. No, no, three, okay, three and a half years of no rain. Back then, rain was equivalent to the prosperity of the land. If it didn't rain, it meant no food. No food, it means people die, okay? And, and, and at that point, rain was like this blessing upon the land, and God resists the blessing, um, and we see, though, how was Elijah able to do this? And he's bringing this relatable example to us. Okay? Notice in verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It's the idea that he, he had the same kind of emotions, the same kind of physical characteristics. You know, sometimes you and I look at men of the Bible and women, too, as like these superheroes, we think, man, we can never be like them. Or, or they were such, they had like this, you know, we have faith here, but they had like faith there. Elijah wasn't Superman. He didn't have special powers. He was a normal dude. He lived a simple, he lived an extraordinary life, but he was a simple man himself. The difference was that he prayed by faith. Notice in verse 17 there, it says that he prayed earnestly. Do you guys see that? He, being Elijah, prayed earnestly. The literal reading of this means that he prayed while in prayer, that he prayed in prayer. You're like, yeah, what else do you do in prayer other than pray? Well, think about it. There's a lot of people that, that will recite our Lord's prayer, right? The model prayer. They ain't praying. They're just saying words. People will say Hail Marys or different things that, that become empty. You could pray and say nothing. There's a difference between praying and actually praying. That in praying, he prayed. It's the idea that he did this with all of his heart, meaning the words that came from his lips were not just words, they came from his heart. And this is how we're to pray. He's an example. But I want, to, want you to notice that right before 
the epic battle that ensued on Mount Carmel. If you've never read it, go to 1 Kings 18 at some point. But right before that, he gets a word from the Lord. Okay, they didn't have like the, you know, our spiral bound Bibles, not spiral, but he didn't have our bound kind of Bibles that we have now. Um, and we're told that God came to him in the third year, right? It was three and a half years that the rain had stopped. And he said, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Then we're told that Mount Carmel happens. Okay, he calls fire down from heaven. And then after he prays that God would send rain. And we're told that seven times he went and prayed and he asked God to send rain. And he had this confidence in praying. Why? It's because of this. Everyone look back up on the screen. God told him, I will bring rain. And so then when Elijah prays, there's this confidence and boldness based upon the word of God. Robert Law says this, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. It is based upon the word of God that we can pray in confidence. And that is a good practice for us to get in because when we pray God's word, we know that we're praying God's will. And if we pray God's will, God says, I, what you pray, I will hear and I will move. If you pray according to my will. This is why you wanna know the Bible because you wanna know the prayers that get answered to the prayers that are based upon the word of God. And God says, I will, I will answer as you pray according to my word. But the question for today is, will you live your life giving proper priority to prayer? Prayer is one of those things that it can be often neglected. Oh, I'll read the Bible. Oh, I'll serve the Lord. But you want me to spend five minutes in prayer? Have you ever tried spending just five minutes in un, uninterrupted time with the Lord? That is the hardest thing on earth to do. The Bible says that the, f that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Praying has no physical attributes to it. You can't pray physically. It's all spiritual. And that's why it can be difficult for you and I, but it is to have the priority in life, whatever season. But it just is gonna come down to whether we believe it's powerful or not. You will be the proof of what you think by when, what, and how you pray. But we need to understand that I believe our enemy that we are against, that the spirit is contrary to, wants us to do anything but pray. Everyone look at me. God would rather have you read the Bible, or sorry, not God. The enemy would rather have you read the Bible than pray. The Bible would rather have you feed homeless than pray. He'd rather have you serve in children's ministry than pray. Why? Because Satan knows where the power is. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it so hard to pray? Why is it every time I go to pray that something happens, something gets interrupted, sister does this, brother does that, mind gets distracted? It's because prayer is effective for the one pursuing the Lord. It's powerful. It'll bring physical healing, It'll bring spiritual healing and it'll do more than we could possibly imagine. And so we are to give that priority to prayer. That's what the Bible says. Sounds good? So I don't know if you noticed, but we're not done just yet. We still have two verses. We're only on, we only read up to verse 18. And so we see James kind of has a little P 
P.S. You guys know what a P.S. is? You know, when you're writing a letter and you get done with your main thought, but then you're like, oh, I forgot something. And you write P.S. Hope to see you soon. P.S. Don't kick the dog or P.S. or whatever it might be. Right? Or maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've received a letter and it's like P.S. And then it's like, oh, wait, I forgot one more thing. P.S.S. And then like P.S.S. S.S.S. Right? And, and it goes down. It's kind of like this, this afterthought. Does anyone know what P.S. means? That is awesome. That is good. Lincoln. Postscript. Does anyone, did anyone else know that? That is, that is amazing. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you knew that. How do you know that? You just like read books and that was in a book? That's just, that's just crazy. Yeah, I thought PS standard for PlayStation 2 and then I looked it up. Um, it's actually Latin, right, for postscriptum. Uh, it means to be written after, postscript. And that kind of seems to be what happened. You know, James has a lot of different ideas and it's almost like he wanted to end with prayer and he's like, oh, brethren, I got one more thing to tell you. And so we see the PS in verse 19 and 20. And there, there might be a loose connection with prayer, uh, but it's loose at best. Look at verse 19, 20, last two verses in the book of James. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Essentially, James talks about someone who would stand in the way of someone else and who is turning away from what is true. It describes that someone who is, who is wandering, who once knew the truth, but now is wandering from the truth and beginning to go in the error. The word wanders here means to stray slowly and gradually. Have you guys ever like been on a raft in water and all of a sudden you're on one side of the pool and then you're on the exact opposite? Right? It doesn't happen instantly. It happens over time. Something that happens a little quicker is maybe when you're in the ocean and you're at like life, lifeguard tower 17. You're like, okay, hey, this is where my family is. Got to stay in front of the lifeguard tower. Mom said, don't get you know, in between. And then all of a sudden you're at lifeguard tower two and you're like, what in the world? And, and all of a sudden it takes you 30 minutes. You guys know what I'm talking about? It happens, right? The current. And it's that, right? It's that wandering. And there's an old hymn that talks about how our heart is prone to wander. And you guys are going to experience, as you guys grow together through junior high, some of you are going into high school next week, there's going to be those that wander from the truth, that they've heard the word of God, but maybe it's temptation that makes them wander. Maybe it's trial that makes them wander. Maybe it's uh, uh, an opposing argument to the Bible that makes them wander. But for some reason, there will be those that wander from the truth. And those of you who are close to the truth, walking in the truth, right? Jesus said, I am the truth, that you're with Jesus. James would say that our job is to stand in their way. And we are to turn them back. It means to cause someone to direct his interest and attention and trust towards something. We are to constantly point those back to Jesus. That is what it means to be in the family of God, right? You have a family at home, right? The idea of family is that you have each other's back, that you're not gonna allow your little sister to go play in the freeway. You're like, but I'm not the mom. Yeah, but you're the older sister. You're the older brother, right? They're wandering from the truth, turn them back, right? You see, you and I, we are part of a family. And so often, rather than turning people back towards the Lord, 
we say, oh, wow, look at that person. Yeah, totally, totally sinful, totally walking away from the Lord. And we gossip and we comment, but how often do we stand in their way and say, you're wandering from the truth? Now, how does one do this? How does someone turn back a sinner from his way? Well, this is how I believe the passage might loosely connect. Keeping with what we just learned in the priority of prayer, we are to pray. If there is power in prayer, then the best thing we can do for someone who is wandering from the truth is to pray for them. Because it is the Father in heaven who draws those to the truth by the Holy Spirit. So first, prayer is the best thing we can do. But that's not the only thing that we should do. I think we should seek to have those conversations and speak the truth and love to them. Because listen, if they wandered from the truth, then what do they need? They need the truth. The Bible is described as a light and a lamp. And so we are to open it up and show them, hey, you're off here. This is what God's word says. Now we do that speaking the truth in love. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, specifically talking about sin, says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The easier thing to do when someone is wandering is to just kind of turn aside and let them go. The loving thing to do is to stand in their way and to say, this is the truth and you know the truth and to speak into their life. But we need to be able to make a distinction. Jude chapter one, verse 22 and 23 says, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Some people, they just need that tender, gentle, hey, this is what God's word says. Let's come back. Others, and I lean to be the other when I wander, I need someone to come open the Bible and literally show me and say, you are wandering, get back on the straight and narrow. Like, I need that. My wife does that for me. Uh, I need someone to just shoot straight and pull, right? Notice how, how save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, despising the things that they are involved in. And so we gotta be discerning. But how important is it to do this, to stand in the way of someone who's wandering? Well, James would say it is life or death, that you will save a sinner, right? Save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Listen, you can't force someone to do something, but you can get in their way. You can't stand and say, hey, I know you want to jump off that cliff, but you're going to have to get through me first. Not in an aggressive way. But sometimes people need aggressiveness. Sometimes people need the truth put in their face. Sometimes it's a simple verse and encouragement. Sometimes it is simply your prayer. But this is an awesome little PS that James ends on here. The encouraging fact is that no matter how far someone strays in Christ, there is always a way back and the road isn't far because he who draws near to God God says, I will draw near to him. And so my prayer for you is that each one of you would walk in the truth, that you would walk in the ways of the Lord. But I know, everyone look at me, I know there's gonna be some of you in this room that are gonna wander. And some of you, some, some 
all of us to some extent will wander to some degree. And what you need to know is that however far you get away from God, there's always a road that leads back as long as you have breath in your lungs. And it's not far. You could walk away from God for 10 years. You get pretty far. And one simple turn back, God says, I will be right there. When you're ready to turn back, when you return to me with all of your heart, God says, you will find me. So maybe some of you today or even you've wandered from God. Just turn back. Maybe you know a brother or sister in Christ that have wandered. Tell them. Show them the word. It's not your word. It's his word. And speak the truth and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, are, um, we want to be close to you today. We all feel that tugging on our heart to, to walk away from you. There's those pulls of temptation, pulls of trials, pulls of thinking. And we know that our hearts are prone to wander. We know that all of us at one time have been like those sheep that go astray, that even though the shepherd is the best thing for them, those sheep sometimes just try to get away. And Lord, you are our shepherd today. And Lord, we, we don't want to wander from the truth of your word. And even all that we've learned in the book of James, would you help us to keep right on that path? You told the Israelites not to turn to the left or the right, that you had this path laid out for them and you led them by that fire, you led them by that cloud. And we know that today you lead us by your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. We know the path. Would you help us keep on it? Father, I pray for the eighth graders that will be soon in high school here at church. And God, I pray that as they move on, that they would not forget the things they've learned, but they would continue in them steadfastly. Father, we pray that as they go into that high school room and they're going to be freshmen, Lord, that they would be an example, that they would not allow others to despise their youth, but they would just simply be an example in purity and faith and doctrine and and word and deed, that those even upperclassmen would, would look at these incoming freshmen, they would see, man, they love Jesus. That when they see them, they would see you. And God, those who maybe have been wandering, Lord, that you would bring them back today, that they might start this new season afresh, close to you. God, we pray for these seventh graders who are gonna be eighth graders in this room. We pray that they too would be that example in the way that they act, in the way that they worship, in the way that they fellowship, in the way that they pray for one another. God, that you would develop a culture here that would be biblical, that would be beneficial, that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, as these new ones will be coming in, Lord, that it would just be a new season of pursuing Jesus together. And so we love you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.